It's happening, readers. We have heard that you want paperbacks from our tailored book recommendation service called TBR. And I'm delighted to let you know that we're going to be in sync with your request. That's right. We're bringing paperbacks. Whether you hate carrying around bulky hardcovers, you're on a budget, you want a wider range of recommendations, or all of the above, now you can get a paperback subscription from TBR curated just for you by one of our bibliologists. Get all the details at mytbr.co. That's mytbr.co. We're bringing paperbacks. <laughs> Welcome to the Book Riot Podcast. This is a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading, increasingly about whatever we feel like talking about related <laughs> to the world of books and reading. I'm Rebecca Shinsky. I am here this week with Jen Northington, while Jeff is out, I don't know, cosplaying as me at a national park. So <laughs> is that what's going on? <laughs> I, that's, I'm pretty sure he's going to come back with like pink hair and 16 inches shorter. <laughs> that will be a feat. I look forward to it. <laughs> Uh, and you are also freshly back from a national park in Northington. Yeah, we went to Acadia National Park. My partner's family has been going up there for 30 years wow. in the summer. Yep, it's like their annual pilgrimage to nature, which I'm on board with, quite yeah. frankly. An annual we pilgrimage. Love a, yeah. We love a nature pilgrimage here. Right. So it was it was lovely. It was beautiful. And as I told Rebecca when I got back, I did stand up paddleboarding for the first time, and now I'm obsessed. <laughs> it's the best. It's pretty amazing. So uh, I'm looking forward to hearing much more about that. And maybe we can work some inflatable stand up paddleboarding into a future book riot. Like, adventure can we somehow. podcast from the paddleboard? <laughs> that seems very fraught, but we could try. I, I feel like this is what GoPros were invented for. <laughs> we'll just export audio of like splash. <laughs> <laughs> I'm on board for that experiment. <laughs> Well, we're three minutes in and the wheels have already come all the way off. So <laughs> let's take a quick sponsor break and we will get into the news. It's happening, readers. We have heard that you want paperbacks from our tailored book recommendation service called TBR. And I am delighted to let you know that we're going to be in sync with your request. That's right. We're bringing paperbacks. Whether you hate carrying around bulky hardcovers, you're on a budget, you want a wider range of recommendations, or all of the above, now you can get a paperback subscription from TBR curated just for you by one of our bibliologists. Get all the details at mytbr.co. That's mytbr.co. We're bringing paperbacks. <laughs> Okay. Well, I feel like I haven't done the news in books in approximately a million years. It's only been two weeks since I was here on the show, but things have kind of happened. We're also in the middle of August. So like there are some big stories and there is some follow up. Um, for folks who have been listening to the show for a while, we discussed, I want to say at the, I guess all the way back in February is what this news post that Kelly Jensen wrote for Book Riot says. And I'll believe her because time is a flat circle. Um, but we discussed, I guess, back in February that the um, Leander Independent School District in Texas was looking at some books that parents had been, um, that some parents had raised concerns about and had complained were on a list of optional, you know, like choose some books from this to read. These are not required reading. Um, at the time, the one we were most discussing was in the Dream House by Carmen Maria Machado. 
uh, which uh, does contain uh, sexual content and is about sexual violence in an intimate relationship, is about an abusive relationship. And parents were objecting not just to that content, but also to the fact that it depicts a queer relationship. Um, you'll probably remember that this was the school board meeting at which a woman pulled out a large pink adult toy and dropped it on the table to make some kind of point. Mm. Um, we are not we're not sure what exactly she was <laughs> trying to get at while she was waving it around talking about how these books were child abuse. Um, sadly, the update here is that um, the school district, which had promised that they would review the 15 books that were on the list um, by the end of summer, and we were, you know, hoping that that reconsideration process would result in those books staying on school shelves and on the list of, you know, optional reading um, for students. Those uh, many of those books have been pulled in April. The district removed, um, among others, The Lottery by Miles Hyman, who is an author and illustrator. It's a graphic novel adaptation of The Lottery by Shirley Jackson. Uh, Laura Dean Keeps Breaking Up With Me by Bariko Tamaki, illustrated by Rosemary Valero O'Connell. Um, the graphic novel of The Handmaid's Tale was also pulled. Um, Why the Last Man by Brian K. Vaughn and Pia Guerra. And V for Vendetta by Alan Moore, um, illustrated by David Lloyd, was pulled. Um, the school district had ensured parents that they were going to work on these policies, updating things over the summer to make sure that they were avoiding inappropriate literature being assigned based on students' ages. Um, these these protests were brought by a small population uh, with a loud voice. And the the sad news that we're here to deliver today is that now more inappropriate, please hear the scare quotes around that word, um, books have been added to the list um, saying that they cannot be in the classrooms or on book club lists. And those additions include uh, None of the Above by I.W. Gregorio. Out of Darkness by Ashley Hope Perez, Red at the Bone by Jacqueline Woodson, Brave Face by Sean David Hutchinson, In the Dream House by Carmen Maria Machado, Ordinary Hazards by Nikki Grimes, and Shout by Lori Hulse Anderson. And additional books are still under review, including Speak by Lori Hulse Anderson, which is a well-known and now a couple decades old title about rape. Um, not a great follow-up here. I'm sorry to say. Yeah. May their efforts fail? I um <laughs> Yeah, I mean it's it's uh it's hard to see how this is going to get better in the short term, certainly. Um yeah, except for that, you know, all we can all do is know what is happening in our school districts and make some phone calls and help make sure that these books are in other places where they're accessible to teenagers because as Kelly rightly points out the real the realist issue here is that these teenagers are going to have a much harder time finding titles that might speak to their own developing identities and experiences because of the actions of the school board mhm mm yeah, and in, in many of the recent challenges that we've been seeing, the trend had been that the challenges were unsuccessful. Yeah. And we've seen so many school boards refusing to sort of cow to requests like this. We've seen librarians really pushing back against notions that certain types of books or books that depict certain sexualities or genders or kinds of relationships were harmful to kids. And so to see a school district not only, you know, side with a very small and vocal minority of parents, but then 
you know, sort of double down by adding titles is really concerning. And, and since the books have been removed from the classrooms themselves and from the reading list, students don't have access to those books inside the school buildings um, if they need to read about a, a book about being a teenager dealing with a difficult relationship or dealing with sexual abuse or assault. Um, one important thing that Kelly points out in this piece, which of course we will link to in the show notes, is that sometimes when an author's book is banned or challenged, folks will say like, oh, well, that must mean that you wrote something that's like, it's really good. It's like that good. And people are scared of it. And that's why um, they're taking it down. So you should like be proud of yourself. That's great. And, and Kelly points out here, I think very rightfully that this is not like this is never a situation where we want to be celebrating um, something having a book a book like this challenged or removed this is a real loss as Kelly points out for young people who are now having to work harder to get books that are relevant to them and in the cases of clear racism and homophobia that are at play with the titles on this list we're talking about a small group of people removing books based on their own conservative viewpoints, rather than ensuring that the entire community that attends that school has access to titles that represent them. Um, if Leander, Texas is sounding familiar to you, it's also the same place where the director of the public library was removed um, a year or so ago for hosting a pride story time. Uh, so some stuff's going on there in Leander. If you are in Leander or near Leander or um, a voter with some power uh, in Texas, or maybe you're thinking about running for a school board. This is something to look at, certainly. Mm. All right. I guess we'll do the biggest publishing yeah. story. Another story I'm not jazzed about. <laughs> of the week. Uh, yeah, I'm really looking forward to hearing your take on this because we haven't had much of a chance to talk about it. And I'm just you know, still catching up from, um, from being on vacation last week. But the headline is that Hachette is going to buy Workman Publishers for $240 million. As the New York Times notes, publishing continues consolidation. Um, so this deal is going down. Workman, if you're not familiar, is one of the largest independent publishers in the U.S. And what makes them different from most other big publishers is they have this huge backlist. They publish what to expect when you're expecting. Um, they publish the Brain Quest workbooks. If you like, I remember using those when I was a kid in school. Um, you might have kids or teach kids um, that are using those. They publish fewer books per year than most publishers, and they're really focused on evergreen content. It's like, so what can we publish now? Like, what to expect when you're expecting that's going to be appealing five or 10 or 20 or 30 or 40 years down the line. And they've done really well at that. Um, they also own Algonquin Publishing or Algonquin Books um, is the fiction branch of Workman. Um, so this is, you know, 240 million, like this is a big deal. It's about 10% of the size of the deal for Penguin Random House to buy Simon & Schuster. Uh, Hachette seems excited about it and they're saying, you know, that they are retaining workmen's workforce, that they don't really intend to futz around too much with how workmen gets things done because the formula that they've landed on has been really successful for them. And I can see from Hachette's side why this is appealing. Hachette does a lot of front list, a lot of fiction. They've got James Patterson. Those things are, that, those kinds of books tend to be, when they're hot, they tend to be hot for like a flash in the pan kind of moment. And the enduring appeal of something like a, a big backlist of evergreen nonfiction. I can see why you would want to add that to your 
oeuvre, as it were, <laughs> as a publisher. Indeed. Will, will I ever confidently say that <laughs> word? I'm not sure. <laughs> Jen Northington, what are your quibbles? Ugh. Yeah. So, okay. Well, so first let's, let's do our uh, reference here. We're, we're looking at a story in the New York Times by Elizabeth A. Harris and Alexandra Alter, and we'll link to it in the show notes. So I have a lot of problems with this. I, as some might know, was an independent bookseller for a long time and have been working in publishing t- since 2004. So it's been a minute. And I really have hated to see these Mergers happened starting with Penguin Random House a few years back. And like, sure, it was fun to try to decide what the new name was going to be. I'm still sad that we never got the random Penguin House because that would have been just a lovely <laughs> moment. But it's it's not good. It's not good because, I mean, there's so much. I'm like, where do I start? Why is this not good? <laughs> we got time. We got, yeah, well, right. I mean, I, would try, I will try not to rant unhingedly. But it's not good because... These big conglomerate publishers are owned by even bigger corporations, and they are all now tied up in with the same financial, you know, line, as it were. Like, the purse strings go mm. to these big corporations. And publishing is not a super profitable industry. Shocker, I know, for anybody who's listened to the show for more than a minute. Like, it is, there's not a lot of money, and it's marked by a lot of inefficiencies, and it it is actually in the smaller independent publishing houses where we see the most interesting initiatives to make it a more sustainable industry. For example, workmen who have been publishing very intelligently for a very long time. They have also been, speaking as a bookseller, very good to work with. Like, they they have been good to work with. They have been very smart about how they do their marketing. They have a real sense of what the publishing ecosystem looks like and how they fit into it. And, like, it's it's been really important to authors, to agents, to editors to have somebody like Workman there as an option for like where you place a book, where you go to work, you know, who you pitch to, where you get your books. Like all of these things are important. And Hachette can say whatever they want about like, oh, we won't touch it. Like, I will believe that never. <laughs> I, I do believe that they want it to keep making money. And if they are smart, they will, in fact, not touch it. But that's never going to happen because now you have all of these news. Cor- well, it's not News Corp in this case, but you know what I mean? You have these huge, mm-hmm. you know, company, corporate boards and investors that you are now reporting to. And like that doesn't look the same as when you are an independent publisher. I will say that the thing that is most baffling to me about this on the workman side is that the, so the company was founded by a couple, uh, Carolyn Workman and um, her husband, Peter Workman. They founded the company in 1968. And like they have, like I said, been making super smart decisions ever since. Um, Peter Workman died in 2013. And uh, she, Carolyn Workman has been running the company ever since. And she had told the New York Times that the succession plan for the business was always to sell. And then on top of it, they're saying that they're donating 
proceeds to a charity from the sale. So like you don't need the money clearly because you're donating all of the proceeds to charity. The business is not in jeopardy or failing, right? Like it's not like it's Mm -hmm. bankrupt and somebody's buying it out. It's actually super successful. And I just can't wrap my head around why the succession plan would be to sell if you don't need the money. (laughs) Like, you, you like I don't uh, there's a beautiful version of this where Workman becomes a cooperatively owned publishing house or, you know, I don't know. They find one of the like Coke billionaire other ones to take it over who wants a publishing project. Like I just can't fathom that choice. Yeah, I just can't understand it. That's the most baffling part of this to me as well. Like I, as you were saying, I totally understand why Hachette would want to buy Workman and Workman generates a lot of great content. Like there's a note here that about 40% of their revenue comes from books that Workman themselves created where they're like, this is the idea, you know, like we're going to make this book and make it happen where they're not waiting for pitches from authors um, or agents to come in and they're not having to like seek people out. They have these good ideas in-house yeah. and that's so much talent that I I wonder why they and maybe they did explore it um but I really want to know like if you don't need the money why not something like an employee owned yes situation um why not I think it's King Arthur Baking is a really great example mm. that's employee owned um, where, you know, everybody has a literal stake in not in, you know, it's not like a cheerocracy. Not everybody gets a vote <laughs> in like every single decision that's made. But where all of the employees, you know, have a, a literal financial stake in the success of the company uh, and understand how it's put together and are incentivized to keep making the mm-hmm. kinds of great business decisions that Workman has been making. I think if you've been enjoying working for workmen for, you know, some period of time now, I would be worried about what a transition to working for Hachette might be like, um, once a different, once a parent company owns your systems, Mm -hmm. um, presumably some of that good quality of life stuff is at least at risk, if not definitely going to change. And right, if you don't need the money and you can't build a successful business like this for 40 years without a bunch of people doing great mm-hmm. work, then then why not explore? And maybe they did explore it and it's, you know, just not being disclosed, but that's a real that's a real head scratcher. Yeah. Like let us let us sell this thing and give the money away, hopefully to an organization that will make a good use of it. And right. like Lord knows there are plenty of things that need our money these days, but employees, I would think, would be the first place to look. <laughs> yeah, I just, I literally cannot understand it. It's just, and like in the grand scale of things, $240 million is not that much money. I mean, it's just not. Oh, yeah, it, it's not. When you think about the scale of these kinds of acquisitions, like that's, I bet you they that the employee, employees of Workmen could have put that together in a big pool. Like if they, ha- you know what I'm saying? Like it's a lot of money, but like, or, you know, there are nonprofits that, you know, like Grey Wolf Press mm-hmm. um, that, you know, get their funding from other places and manage to do it successfully. Like there are other options than selling to a big, what are we at? Big three now publisher? Yeah. Like it's. And also, not for nothing, and this is like a very specifically bookseller complaint, Hashet is kind of terrible at distribution. Mm. And like they're not that easy to work with. It's harder to get the books than it is to get them from some other places. Sorry, Hachette. It's just true. 
And now that's going to probably, I mean, Workman has their own distribution channels, but those will now all belong to Hachette. Like, what is going to happen there? So bookstores potentially are looking at a harder time filling orders for titles that have been long-term sellers for them. And we don't know what's going to happen to the company. Right. And you're right. We are really facing a world of big three because yeah. Penguin Random House is about to absorb Simon & Schuster. I can't. Like, I just can't. <laughs> that I can't. deal... Yeah, that deal is for $2 billion, which really right. puts this $240 million in perspective. Um, HarperCollins is acquiring Houghton Mifflin Harcourt for $349 million. <laughs> So like a little bit more, but not a lot in the big scheme of things. And that leaves... That I mean, really it's nothing. Anybody. There's really, I was trying to think, like, who is the next biggest independent publisher? Mac, oh, well, Macmillan. It's not Macmillan. No, not Mac, Macmillan. Macmillan is a big already. Yeah. Right. So it was, it was, it was, you know, Random House, Penguin, Hachette, Simon & Schuster, Macmillan. Those were the big five. And then mm-hmm. you had Workman and Houghton Mifflin Harcourt as, like, sort of the next step, the next biggest. And then you have, you know, your coffee house press, you have your $3 radio or $2 radio, rather. You have your Grey Wolf, the truly small, you know, milkweed, like you have these tiny, you know, presses that are not going to be acquiring anybody. Um, I just, I just, yeah, I really, so I was trying to like, I was like, okay, I have to try to have an optimistic thought about this. Like, what can it be? And I was like, is there any, does this open up any room for some of those other independent presses to do a thing? But like, I feel like the, I I want the answer to be yes. And if anybody can think of a way that that's true, like, please let me know because I could use a ray of sunshine in here. I just feel like it creates this vacuum that is not going to be, able to be inhabited by smaller presses because, especially given that we are still in a pandemic, they don't have resources to take advantage of potential opportunities in the market like this. Yeah, and it it really goes back or re-raises again, I guess, a question that Jeff and I come to every time there's talk of one of these mergers or like consolidating power and consolidating resources in the industry, which is like the looming thing that could be the tide that raises all boats is if one of these mega publishers went after or against Amazon in mm. some meaningful way. And like there's all this acquisition of power happening and all this consolidation of resource and of supply chains and of distribution. But everyone is still deeply dependent on Amazon, or at least dependent enough on Amazon, those sales are meaningful enough, the distribution is meaningful enough. And Amazon certainly, you know, wields the threat Mm -hmm. of oops, we might lose your buy buttons. Don't know how that happened. Yeah, right. Um, That I'm I'm not sure that anyone is willing. Well, we haven't seen anybody be willing to do it yet. I would I think the ray of hope I want to have someone tell me is possible (laughs) is like, maybe there's a point where they can be consolidated enough that like there's some sort of move against being as reliant upon Amazon or being as scared as publishers are, I think, of pushing back against Amazon. But for as long as publishers align themselves with Amazon and for all of the lip service that they give to loving independent bookstores, and I believe that publishers value some of the things they get from independent bookstores, but they are deeply aligned with Amazon. Like, don't get it twisted. For as long as they align with Amazon, 
that's an automatic and deeper disadvantage to the truly independent, like small independent mm-hmm. presses um, that may sell their books on Amazon as well, but they don't have the resources to even consider like pulling out of a major retail source like that. Yeah. or just trying to go on their own. Um, it's all, I mean, it's all connected. This is an ecosystem. Is. Yep. And this is interesting and worrisome yeah like we know from science class in high school that consolidation in an ecosystem is usually not a good thing in the long run for that ecosystem yeah so here we are i hate it thanks i hate it thanks i hate it on that note let's take another sponsor break okay you know this next story is also one that i'm super interested in your bookseller perspective on we're looking at a piece by lily herman from bustle called did the pandemic kill the book tour and i don't think we know the answer to that yet since as you just said we're still in the pandemic um but she does a nice job here you know she's talking to several people in the industry to booksellers to publishers to authors themselves about how the shift away from in-person events and into online events that we saw um, especially in the like early parts of the pandemic, at least that's my impression. It feels like we're seeing fewer online events being like loudly advertised, at least. Um, They're definitely sort of asking, still happening. Yeah. So, but how like Trumpety it is about it? Yeah, and like I think maybe how long publishers are going to continue doing online events, or will mm. they move back to doing like to doing a hybrid model at some point of. We'll go back to in-persons, but we're going to offer a virtual access to these things. Um, she raises a lot of interesting questions here about sort of what is the future of the book event um, or of the book tour as we emerge from the pandemic and what that looks like. And, you know, I think we've had a couple moments definitely earlier in the summer, like late spring, early summer. It was like, oh, events might be back by like late summer, early yeah. fall, or at least hybrid ones. And here we are with the Delta variant. Yep. <laughs> Um, and publishers plan a couple quarters in advance. Um, so I think bookstores are thinking about what kind of events they're going to be doing for like January, February, March right now. Yeah. So I'm, I'm just curious to see how it goes. Like this was your job for years. What do you think about this? <laughs> yeah, it, it's, uh, it's interesting too, because now I'm coming at it also from the perspective of having had a book come out during Mm. the pandemic and doing a virtual book tour for that book. And it's that part is a little tricky because, you know, this is my first experience, you know, when Sword Stone Table came out, I don't have anything else to compare it to. And I know that like Kelly Jensen, for example, who we talked about earlier, she's had multiple anthologies came out, come out. And she has said more than once that her, even though she did a virtual book tour, the sales were so much worse than they were for any other anthology that she's published. And she does attribute that to a lack of in-person events. And there's a quote in here from, uh, is it Leah Koch um, at The Ripped Bodice Mm -hmm. about how when you're in a bookstore at an an event in person, you do feel this like peer pressure to to buy the book. Um, It feels like rude in a way not to. I think a lot of us have experienced that and Mm -hmm. also are sort of, you know, happy to to have that be part of the experience. Right. You go, you get the book, they sign it like it's a it's a whole thing. Um, Whereas, you know, with virtual events, 
There's none of that. Right? You're in your living room. Like, are you even wearing pants? Where's your wallet? <laughs> like, who knows? It doesn't matter because you're just, you can watch it from wherever. Now, that has also been, as this article points out, one of the most amazing parts of this big switch to virtual is accessibility. I mean, and, mm-hmm. and you know, from an anthology perspective, we were able to have people on screen together who never would have been in the same room as each other for, a, uh, for an in-person book tour. We probably couldn't have even gotten a lot of those folks for in-person events, but because it was virtual, you know, we could have an author from Canada next to an author from New York, next to an author from, you know, Philadelphia, and it was fine. Like, it didn't matter. And if you are not able to attend events in person when there's not a pandemic on, suddenly you are just, you know, it's like a candy store, right? You can Mm -hmm. go to whatever you want, whenever you want. Like that's, that is amazing. And I don't think should be discounted. And this article does a good job of talking about that. It's also helpful for some authors, you know, who for various reasons cannot be out on the road in a way that would make a book tour possible. And it is, although there are costs, let's not pretend there aren't costs involved in doing a virtual book tour because you can't, as we have learned, just get on Zoom and do it. Like that way badness lies, you know, there's Zoom bombing, there's technical issues. Like if you want to do a good virtual event, you have to invest in a program that is going to help screen your comments and make sure the technical stuff works and all of that jazz. So that does that's not free, but it is a hundred percent. I mean, I don't actually know the percentage. It is definitely cheaper <laughs> than paying to send an author around, which publishers are increasingly less inclined to do. Only the big people who are going to draw a crowd anyway get a book tour. So I guess what I've said here is like four different versions of how this is complicated. <laughs> like it's it's hashtag complicated. Um, I know that it's it's funny to think about because I remember having a fight with a store owner about streaming our events online way back in the day because people we've had this technology for Mm -hmm. a while right like this is not new technology and we thought about doing hybrid events I want to say in like 2011 but I was I being the one who was on the hook for when the publisher was like so how many people came to your event Uh. I was like I literally cannot stand the idea of having people not like however many people might tune in that is not going to count when i have mm. to report back to this publisher how many people came it's also not going to count to the author who is standing here in front of a room and so anything that i felt like would lessen the number of people literally in the space i was very wary of now whether or not that was correct i'm not saying i was right i'm just saying that's how i felt because reporting those numbers is a thing you have to do totally. and then they tell you whether or not you're going to get another author. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, yeah, I think it 2011 or thereabouts as you're mentioning, the way that we thought about these things was really different and there was so much conversation that I heard around that time about like well, if we let them attend online, why will they ever come into the store right. ever again? That's right. And I mean, maybe that's what people's behavior really would have done at the time. I don't know. I'm not sure that anybody tried it enough to actually no, find out certainly before not. Yeah, before COVID happened and this was the only option was first to be fully virtual if you wanted to have events and now I'm really glad to hear that the idea of hybrid 
looks like it will be sticking around at least for some publishers or some stores and some some of their events that, you know, it's and maybe it's the big ones where like this author is going to attend bookstores, but you don't live near one of those 10 mm-hmm. and you can still order the book from one of those 10 stores and dial in to zoom in whatever to the event and get to like watch this author and submit a question via the chat if you mm-hmm. want to or, or any of those things and still have that experience of connecting to the book. I think this forced publishers to reconsider how they define like attendance and how yes. they calculate eyeballs on oh, a they're thing. Still, you know? They're still counting though. There's I'm no sure doubt they that are. they're still counting. Oh, I'm sure they are. Like I, I totally believe that the day that it's like, hey, independent bookstores in New York, you're allowed to have like in-person events with unlimited attendance or, you know, as long as the fire marshal's cool with it, we're cool with it, whatever. Like publishers will be back to like, can we have these and how many people will be there? Mm-hmm. Um, but I, Oh, but there even are... online, I mean, they're counting eyeballs. Oh yeah. Also. Yeah. Yeah. Um, sure. And they should like, yes. yeah. How many people total participate? I think has to matter Yes, <laughs> um, yes. for yeah. a publisher determining if it's worth their resources and worth their author's time. But a broadening of how that is calculated, I think, is really beneficial to everybody involved for all the reasons of accessibility mm-hmm. that you mentioned. Also, it can be a better reader experience. Like, mm-hmm. uh, and anthologies, as you're talking about, are a perfect example where somebody who really loved your anthology could have attended like half a dozen yes. events and seen a bunch of different contributors. Mm-hmm. And that's not a thing that most people can do unless you're going to be, be what, like a book tour not roadie but groupie yeah like, can you right. imagine like following <laughs> if you start following like an author around from independent bookstore i think town you to get town, a like, restraining little, order is yeah what that's a little <laughs> it's a little creepy sounding but there are ways to be plugged in now and with tools that we've had for a long time but that we didn't understand to be additive we thought that they were right something that would take away yeah. from the overall experience or the overall i guess roi for what a publisher is is getting having done this and yeah I hope it doesn't kill the book tour, you know, as a concept. I think there's some value in those in some limited capacities. But for most authors, I don't think like the sales can outweigh the cost of like airline tickets and being in hotel rooms and sort of the unspoken thing there is that in a lot of cases, the authors themselves are footing the bill for chunks of those tours. Um, And Zoom in your living room is mostly free. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's an interesting I mean, the book tour, though, let's not forget that there have been articles for actual years about like, oh, the book tour is dead now. Wait, right. is it dead now? Like oh, now it's definitely dead. Is it dead yet? Like we're, we've been Long here before. The book tour. Yeah, exactly. We'll be here again. It's just going to keep changing. But the the fact is, is that at the most fundamental level, readers want to connect with authors. We know that, right? We That's mm-hmm. like 100% clear from how all of the book world interacts with each other. And so any way that we can do that in a way that is more accessible, that's more efficient, that hopefully gives space for both the authors and the readers to have a good experience uh, and is supported by publishers, like anything mm-hmm. that gets us there, I'm I'm for. Yeah, and industry... In, in industry specific 
stuff. Um, you know, BEA was canceled this mm-hmm. year. BookCon was canceled and Reed Exhibitions announced in December of 2020. Um, and if you're new around here, Reed Exhibitions is the event production company that ran the annual Book Expo and BookCon, big publishing trade shows um, that happened each year. They said that they were dropping those and the reasoning was, you know, the pretty obvious thing in December of 2020 that the pandemic had, you know, made the future of in-person gatherings uncertain and they wanted to explore new ways forward. And at the time that meant a quote fusion of in-person and virtual events. Um, And this piece notes that there's no word so far on what that actually means. Like we're also still in the middle of the thing. Like I will be shocked if by next August Reed has announced some full throated plan for what it's going to look like, you know, like the, the next couple of years, even as COVID hopefully transitions from being pandemic to just being an endemic thing that we can live with Mm -hmm. are going, it's going to be about uncertainty. It's going to be somebody like maybe now we can have a convention and then we'll see who goes or, or who doesn't go. And Mm -hmm. it will be really interesting to watch how that develops and what kind of appetite folks have. Like, the longer that we are in this in between space where most things are happening virtually, I think the more used to using virtual tools folks in the industry become. And while there is some value of being in in the same room and reading facial expressions that you that it feels like you can't get when you're on zoom or on the phone, we've now also been running this industry almost completely virtually for almost two years. Yep. And the longer that it goes, the harder it will become, I think, to justify the expense of a huge convention and the expense of publishers. You know, they used to pay like 50 grand for a booth at BEA Mm -hmm. for three days. Mm -hmm. And how is how are you going to justify that? I'll look forward to getting answers. Yeah. And I think I'm going to say here on this show that the place to watch is Comic Cons. Like, Mm. I think because those have the most dedicated fan base, the people most likely to want to do the thing. They are such an industry for the people who speak at them uh, in a way that goes far beyond what is true of book conventions like BEA or BookCon even. I mean, BookCon was basically an attempt to make a book version of Comic-Con. So I I think that's going to be the space where we see sooner rather than later what is the most successful and what people are willing to try to do a hybrid approach. I think that's really smart. You're a smart lady. Oh, thanks. <laughs> yeah. And you're right that those comic, the Comic-Con kinds of audiences, that is a level of fandom that very few authors reach um, in just like the straight book world. Yeah. Um, so folks' appetites there will be really indicative. Well... I think let's take one last sponsor break and then we'll wrap up with a really weird continuation (laughs) of a story we talked about a month or two ago. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I know exactly where we're going. There's no question. (laughs) This is a long read. It's by Reeves Weedman and Lila Shapiro in Vulture. The catch you up TLDR is that Back in, I think back in the spring, again, who knows, several months ago on this podcast, we talked about a piece, I think that was in the New York Times, that was about some a weird thing that seemed to be happening in publishing where folks were getting 
emails from someone who was like posing as an agent, posing as a book scout, um, asking for manuscripts of books. And they were, and, and there was like no really connecting thread at the time. There were some of the same patterns like it would you know instead of it being Rebecca Shinsky at Book Riot they would take the like I and N in someone's name and use like different letters but that looked similar so that it would you know imposter email addresses to make the recipient think Rebecca Shinsky at boobriot.com right (laughs) boobriot my long time best typo ever Um, we'd probably make a lot more money with that. <laughs> I think we probably would. Um, right. So they would do stuff like that. They would send emails to like people deep in the industry and the recipients would think that they were hearing from this contact of, like, from a real contact of theirs who was, who was an agent or who was a book scout, who was someone legitimately connected to the book that they were talking about. And this person would be asking for like, what's the password to the manuscript of the new Stieg Larson book? I lost it. Like folks who are working on that one, or can you send me the latest manuscript on this thing? Or, Hey, you're behind on this draft. Like sometimes people were or sometimes this person was like posing as an author's agent and emailing mm-hmm. the author themselves to be like, where, where are you on this thing? What's happening? And when the first piece came out in the times, it was very head scratchy. Like who is doing this and why would you be doing it? And the speculation was that, okay, maybe it's piracy. Maybe they are trying to get early access to these manuscripts so they can put them online and sell them. That did not seem to be like a full theory because it wasn't all brand new Steve Larson stuff. You know, like one of them was the new, I think Brian Washington book and yeah. he's wonderful, but like there are very few people floating. I loved it, but people are not floating around on the internet, like trying to find a pirated version of that six months earlier, or, you know, whatever. They weren't all blockbusters. And Reeves Weedman, the author of this piece got like very intrigued by what could be happening and basically put their like Nancy Drew detective gear on and went trying to figure out what was happening. And it is even weirder than the first piece was, (laughs) which is saying something. (laughs) It really is. I don't even know how to summarize this because there's not a, there's not a finding. So I guess that's the first spoiler is like, there's not an answer yet. Of who this was. I think my favorite part was when her editors were like, you have to stop. Like, you (laughs) have spent a year almost on this story that is going nowhere. Like, you have to write it up and turn it in whatever the end is. And there is no end. They don't know. We still don't know. There was a likely suspect who, like doesn't actually seem that likely once all is said and done they actually interviewed this person Mm -hmm. uh and they have not disclosed the name for obvious reasons and it doesn't seem like it's it's actually them so we still don't know and there's no clear she has said she's got a spreadsheet of like every (laughs) contact and request and you're looking for patterns there's no obvious patterns it's it's wild. It is. Like she refers to having done a big wall thing like in Homeland. Yes. And this just this sounds like a beautiful mind to yes. me. <laughs> like yes, you can 100%. picture there's a wall with a bunch of different things and like pieces of red string attaching them and they don't go anywhere definitive. The person that seemed to be a suspect was um, someone who is, I think, a scout who's like kind of on the edges of the industry or maybe never really like fit into the publishing scene in New York. And people thought like, oh, this person seems like an outsider. Maybe he's disgruntled and would do this. And the best 
like the answer that Reeves Weedman can come up with so far or anybody else who's worked on this, like Lila Shapiro was investigating other folks from other publications have been trying to investigate this. The most fully formed theory is this is just a person doing it for the sake of like knowing they can do it yeah. for the, um, Oh, what's the, the Batman line of like just watching the world burn. Like right. this seems to be someone who like, as far as anybody can tell is not, they're not realizing any material gain from this they're not releasing these manuscripts and pirating them they're not like interfering in anybody's careers in any in any way other than this like mischief they're not Mm -hmm. you know sending a manuscript that isn't complete off to someone that could do something with it they're not releasing them to the press like we don't know how many pieces of material they've actually gotten their hands on because there are folks who have been emailing with this person not realizing they were an mm-hmm. imposter for literal years. Yep. And some, there are probably still people who don't realize that that's who they've been emailing with. So it's just, it's one of those like great shruggy emoji moments. Like, what is this person after? Will we ever know? Right. <laughs> if you're just doing it to know you can, do you at some point unmask yourself to like laugh about it to write your memoir (laughs) right yeah to write your memoir that you will then sell to a publisher who you scammed right and I thought it was funny that or or interesting that they contacted somebody contacted the FBI at some point and the FBI was like well but there's no real harm being done so we don't know what to do here there's not actually a crime per se like there's no the crime is impersonation and fraud, which the FBI is not going to do anything Not a high about. priority. No, not a high priority for the FBI. And, I mean, the, the wild thing about this is this is international, right? Yeah. Like, they're contact—it's also, like, they're, they're talking to, like, you know, not just publishers, but also, like, movie studios. Like, they, they scam indiscriminately. It doesn't matter— how where you are in the publishing ecosystem and the book is system like you are a potential i mean i i could have gotten you know any of us could have gotten an email literally any of us could have gotten an email from this person uh, watch out for rebecca shimsky at boober yes that's right <laughs> set up a filter so i just yeah it's it's bananas and the conclusion of this article is like we still don't know anything and and yeah. and it's probably going to keep going on indefinitely. Yeah, this <laughs> okay. is like a couple thousand words of my editors told me it was time to yeah. wrap this up. So here's everything I know. Yeah, which is super interesting if you like this kind of thing, which we do. So here we are. Yeah, yeah. And Reeves Weedman notes that you know publishing folks being who we are, and a lot of us reading lots of mysteries. Like w- within the industry, people were like, I bet we can figure this out. And right. everybody sort of went sleuthing on their own or like contacted an IT department mm-hmm. who saw where different domains, like they had like 300 domains registered yeah. to different things. They're impersonating the Wiley agency. Like maybe one of the byproducts of having a piece like this go out is that more people who have been connected to it will realize they've been connected to it and like the data could continue right piling up i really want to know yeah i mean of course like this is now the burning question like who is it why are they doing it i i would be shocked if there's not like 
a book deal announcement one day about mm. this. Like, oh, this anonymous is coming forward to tell the story of how they scammed all of publishing for decades. <laughs> Should we take bets on which publisher will oh. be willing to shell out money? Well, for I that? don't even know how to say which pu- which one will exist at that point. Will it just be like Simon Penguin? Houseman, I don't know. Like what? It's like there will the only be one publisher <laughs> to buy it. So their tectonic plates have molded back together. <laughs> yeah, seriously. There's one. Ugh. Oh man, what a weird story. We will, you know, we'll include this link in the show notes as all of the links. But if you want to just like be confused in a pleasant way, yeah. or it's the stakes are relatively right, so low, low. So low. It's a, a nonviolent true crime. Yes. Kind of yes. Kind of moment. Ooh, I would also take the 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 investigative book about oh. this. Like can, not can, just the tell all, but like the book about can the Can someone call Ronan Farrow? Yes. Oh. Can we get yeah, Ronan, I think Ronan Farrow, Farrow has this? better things to do? <laughs> well, I mean he could probably knock this out in like three afternoons. That's a fair point. It's a fair point. <laughs> oh man. Well, we're nearing the end of our time together. But I didn't want to let it go without noting that we got first looks this week of Amazon's Wheel of Time adaptation. And, you know, you're kind of a fan of Wheel of Time. <laughs> you could say that would be true. Yeah, I what Rebecca is allowing me to disclose is that I, one of my side projects is a podcast dedicated to nothing other than talking about the Wheel of Time in exhaustive detail with former writer and good friend of mine, Preeti Chibber, uh, also a, a short story writer for Short Stone Table. It's all nested. Um, all of my interests intersect all the time forever. So, yeah. So there's a first look at the show, which is on Amazon, which is, let me tell you, a dark <laughs> night of the soul conflict I am having mm. here. I have won't ask to, you to no, tell us what you're going to do. I have yet to figure out how I'm going to resolve this. We'll see. Um, but they have, like, the, uh, Entertainment Weekly did a whole spread. They interviewed the showrunner. They, you know, have these stills from various moments that long-term fans will recognize. What I want to know, Rebecca, because I will probably talk about this on at least two other podcasts. So like, <laughs> if you want to hear me talk more about the actual details, head over to uh, Tarvel and Bust or SFF Yeah, which is another Book Riot podcast. But Rebecca, are you like even remotely interested in this as a person who has no connection to the books? <laughs> Well, I was going to ask you to give me the elevator pitch for what Wheel of Time is about, because I have paid so little attention to it in my life as a book person that all I've got is it's a big fantasy series. I mean, you're not wrong because it's it's 15 books long. It was famously finished posthumously by Brandon Sanderson because Robert Jordan died before he could finish it. And it has like a floppity jillion POV characters and a... a bananas amount of stuff happens it's very hard to sum up i guess i guess what i want you know they're positioning it as this like game of thrones next game of thrones is what they're trying to do here Mm -hmm. and i will confess right now that i'm gonna be super sad if that's actually what it turns out to be because one of the things that is baked into the dna of game of thrones is that it is grimdark like everyone's horrible all the good people die pretty much immediately And then what happens, right? Like, that's how Game of Thrones works. And George R.R. Martin wrote it that way on purpose. Like, that's a very deliberate authorial choice. Wheel of Time is not grimdark. 
there are characters. Everybody's complicated. Sometimes you want to, like, shake them through the pages <laughs> of your book. You're like, dude, this is a terrible choice. Why would you do that? But, like, they are, for the most part, the good characters, quote-unquote good guys, are at heart good people trying to do their best in impossible circumstances. And the bad people are evil people trying to do their worst for their own gain. So, like, it is, it is not what Game of Thrones was. And my biggest fear about this show is that the showrunners are going to make it grimdark, mm. in which case that's a completely different property. And they are within their rights to do whatever the heck they want. They paid their money. They get to make the show that they want to make. And I just don't know what that's going to look like. I mean, we literally know what the costumes will look like, but we don't right. know what the tone of the show is going to be. So, Yeah, I think it's hard to know since will be the next whatever property yeah. is just so often intended to like snag the people who watched the first one mm -hmm. and often doesn't tell you anything about the content. Right. Itself. It's true. It's true. Or like for a decade we had, it's the next Gone Girl. And right. all that meant was that it had a twist. Yes. Like. <laughs> So yeah, and an unlikable your, female narrator. <laughs> right, yeah. So for your sake, I hope that this is just, hey, we're trying to snag the same kind of audience. Do you think they are the same kind of audience? I think it's I think there's a ton of overlap. Yeah. I mean it's not a it's not a perfect circle, but it's certainly a very overlappy Venn diagram. And if you like big world, big cast fantasy extravaganzas like that is my elevator pitch for wheel of time actually mm. right there it's a huge world it's much more quote-unquote international although not without like a you know an older white gentleman wrote it so it is not without its problems um there's a lot of problems actually but but it is a much broader scope it is much more deliberately international in in the made-up sense than uh game of thrones is and yeah it, it's like it's a big lush crazy you know magic-y world to roll around in if that's a thing that you like to do it is the thing i like to do so you know i will continue not caring but i hope <laughs> that it's a good experience I, i'm you'll be i mean you personally will be hearing about it from me and also podcast listeners will I mean, be hearing about it from me somewhere i will have an eye on it this is amazon's first big series yes. to come out and you know it'll be right. interesting to see how this goes because their big hobbit situation or not was, hobbit but the big tolkien situation Situation yes. is a huge question mark. I was just going to say, we're also waiting on their Lord of the Rings. So, you mm -hmm. know, it is it is a big... I wonder if they, like, swapped any costume pieces or set. <laughs> Probably not. I can't imagine that they actually like, did, but... How many different cloaks do we really right, need to exactly. make? <laughs> you just send a runner back and forth between the two. Like, here, did you need... What? You need a green cloak? I've got one of those. Here you go. Right. Here's a Who's horse. Like, right. Here's a horse. <laughs> Who needs a magical staff? Yeah, who got needs it. a staff? Like, who needs a pendant? <laughs> We've got those. That's probably not how TV works. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it sounds like TV could be more efficient. So. <laughs> well, I will have my fingers crossed for you and all of the Wheel of Time fans who have been waiting to see how this goes. Thanks. Listeners, as always, thank you for hanging out with us. You can send thoughts or questions or stuff we got wrong, because that happens sometimes too, um, to podcast at bookriot.com. Show notes will be at bookriot.com slash listen. Jeff will be back here in the saddle with me next week. And in a couple of weeks, we will be releasing our special um, fall new books draft as a one-off episode. Um, so we'll have some more information about that. But 
stay tuned because we're going to compete over who can compile the best list of 10 new releases and people will get to vote and I'm the reigning champion. So I have, (laughs) I have a few things on the line here. Um, Jen, thanks for joining me. Thank you. It's always fun. We'll talk to y'all next week. 